0: Hey, we're going to go to Romans chapter 5 today, and uh, I just want to take a moment to say that uh, for all the dads who are here today, thank you so much for being here, and uh, just so proud of the dads at FCC. Uh, we have so many amazing dads, so many amazing men, so many amazing families here at Faith Covenant Church, and just so proud of all of you, I re- we really are, and we really do want to just kind of have a, a quick treat for you outside, you know, we got an interstellar theme going on in here, and... You know, I was thinking about it. We have a youth pastor and two of our students out here uh, cooking uh, cooking hot dogs and, and uh, brats for us. And so we're going to boldly go where no man has ever gone before, right? We don't know how this is going to be, but it's going to be a lot of fun. And, you know, just come hang out with us for a few minutes, make a dog, and then head on home, be with your family. We just want to tell you guys, we love you very much, and we really are so, so appreciative of you. Uh, Father's Day. One time a little boy was asked to explain Father's Day and he said, it's just like Mother's Day, only don't spend as much on the present. You know, and that's true. It really is. Uh, Maybe we're not quite as sentimental about Father's Day because dads are kind of different from moms. Most fathers are really not as sensitive to their children's needs as most mothers are. You know, one time a mother of a brand new baby woke up. It was a Saturday morning. Her husband wasn't in bed. She was kind of surprised. So she put on a robe, and she walked down the hallway. She saw him in the baby's room. And her husband is just sitting there over the crib staring at the newborn baby. And she was so touched. And she's tiptoed up behind him. She slipped her arm through his. And She said, honey, what are you thinking? And he said, this crib is solid cherry wood. How can they make that for just $89? <laughs> you know, we joke about that. You know, being a father, it's the best, hardest job in the world. And the older I get the more appreciation I have for fathers, especially like my dad. My father-in-law is here today. Very honored for him to be here today. And like I said, the older you get, the more you understand just how hard it is. You know, my dad worked so hard to do the best he could, and he's working in a world that was working against him at every turn. And what does every dad, what does every mom want for their kids? It's always the same. I want my kids to have it better than I did. And I know that was true for my dad. But it feels like the entire world is dead, dead set against you while you're trying to make that happen. You know, my mom and dad, when we lived in Colorado Springs, they live in a split-level home. And so their garage is like down kind of in a basement level, and then the rest of the house is up kind of high. <clears throat> my mom and dad got a new refrigerator. It was like around Thanksgiving. My brother-in-law and I are there. And so my dad's like, hey, we we'll gonna get this thing delivered. They delivered it to the garage. We got to get it up the stairs and into the house. And so we get this refrigerator up the top of the stairs going into the house, and it won't fit through the door. And my brother-in-law, and I, we still joke about this, because my dad got really exasperated. He goes, why is everything so hard? <laughs> you know, that is so true, isn't it? Why is everything so hard? If you're like me, you find yourself asking that question. Why are relationships so hard? Why is raising kids such a struggle? Why is family life such a challenge? Romans chapter 5, if you're not there already, we're going to be at the very end of the chapter today, it gives you the answer. See, Paul tells us there are two diametrically opposed forces at work in your life and mine. There's life and there's death. And this battle between life and death in our world is the result of one action by two different men. I want to show you this, I showed you this last week, but Paul sets this up by saying that we are born in Adam. But we can be born again in Jesus, okay? So these two things that are up against each other, Adam and Jesus. Number one, with Adam, you see that there was disobedience, all right? But in Jesus, you see, Jesus obeyed the Lord. But because of Adam, there's a trespass. But because of Jesus, there is now righteousness. Because of Adam, we all experience condemnation. But in Jesus, we experience justification. That's a big word that means you get declared innocent, declared righteous in the sight of God. But because of Adam, Paul says here, many were made sinners. But because of the obedience of Jesus, Paul says, many are made righteous. And here is the big crescendo, the big kahuna. Because of Adam, we all have to live in and amongst death. But because of Jesus, we can experience this thing, this Quality of existence that the writers of the New Testament call life. Because of Adam's disobedience, death touches everything, even our families. And you know, death is reigning in your family when relationships are breaking down. You see despondency in the members of your family, you see rebellion in your children. But Christ's obedience, his sacrificial death, provides an abundance of grace. And so Paul says in this chapter here, we can actually reign in life. And if there's anything our families need today and the generations to follow us, it's this whole idea of life. And so the title today is A Legacy of Life. Romans chapter 5, all right? Look at verse 18. Consequently, based on everything I've said for the first five chapters here, Paul would say, Just as the result of one trespass was condemnation, Adam, for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification. And underline this in your Bible, that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Now look at verse 20. This gets kind of deep. The law was added, the Ten Commandments and all the laws of the Old Testament, 613 of them. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love that passage. But go back again. Look at verse 18. Righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. What is life from the scriptural perspective? Life is the energy, the power, the vitality the vibrancy of God himself, the creator of all life, at work in your very soul. Ephesians 3.20 says, All glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might think or ask. And if life is going to come into our families and also the generations to come after us, life-giving fathers are critical to that process. In America today, we're living in a time when fathers are thought of as almost optional, you know, Uh, like a second adult that's not really necessary, not necessary. But God's Word and my own experience as a youth pastor tells me that fatherhood is indispensable to family and society. You know, the University of Connecticut did an analysis of over 100 studies on parent-child relationships, and they discovered that having a loving father, a nurturing father, was as important as having a nurturing, loving mother. In fact, some of their studies they they looked at said a child's happiness and success actually depends more on the father than on the mother. At the University of Pennsylvania, they found that children who feel a closeness and a warmth with their father are two times as likely to enter college, 75% less likely to have a child in their teenage years, 80% less likely to be incarcerated, and 50% less likely to show the signs of depression. A warm, close relationship. Science and Scripture both demonstrate, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that fathers are irreplaceable, but not just any fathers. Fathers who have life. Life Life-giving fathers. They're giving life to their families. Proverbs chapter 4, listen to this. Solomon wrote this. When I was a son to my father... Not yet strong. In other words, I was a little boy. He taught me and told me, let your heart fully embrace what I have to say. Keep my commandments and live. Who was Solomon's father? It was David, King David. He said, keep my commandments and live. He was not referring to his physical life. Keep my commandments, he means, and you will have life in your soul. That word live, by the way, is an old, old Hebrew word. And it means more than having just a beating heart. It means to revive something, to restore it to life. And that's where we get our word revival. Some of you grew up in church traditions. We talk about revival. It means to have your heart you know, uh, brought back to life. It also means to, to be whole, to be whole again. Psalm 119, the psalmist used this same word. He cries out to God and he says, Lord, revive my spirit. Give life to my spirit through your word. Isaiah, the prophet, uses this word. He cries out to God saying, revive or give life to the spirit, the soul of the humble. And so here's a question I want us to answer today. How can a father, a mother, anyone for that matter, leave a legacy of life? A legacy of life. Number one, you and I have to be able to look beyond the immediate. Look beyond the immediate. I've been a lot with a lot of teenage boys up in the mountains on camping trips and things like that, and what always happens, you get to the top of a mountain, what do one of the boys want to do first thing? They want to grab a big rock and chunk it down and try to start an avalanche. <laughs> the boys love doing that. And I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. What if you were one time, you were like, hugely successful, all right? Man, you throw a rock down, it hits another rock, another rock, another rock. Next thing you know, this massive avalanche just takes off. And you're standing on the top of the mountain with these boys you're on a camp trip, and they're going, this is so cool, this is awesome. They watch this big avalanche roll down into the valley, and there's a home down there, and it crushes the home. And what would you say to that family? I'm really sorry. I didn't think about the immediate consequences of my actions, you know, something like that. How many times have we heard the stories of one man's actions having an avalanche effect on generation after generation of a family either good or bad. Look at verse 18. You notice there's a one trespass that brings condemnation for all men. One act of righteousness brings life for all men. One action Paul says on the on the behalf of Paul, I mean of Adam and on the behalf of Jesus has an avalanche effect on everyone after them. Now think about this. Adam thought only about the immediate at great personal cost to everyone to come after him. And we could all sit here and tell stories about how one person's actions in our family and the, the, has, has had a negative effect, an avalanche effect on our family for generations afterwards. Maybe there was an addiction. Maybe there was an affair. Maybe there was an argument and somebody said something no one could come back from. Maybe there was a purchase. Maybe there was a scheme. Maybe there was a a divorce, but had eyes only for the immediate. Proverbs chapter 19. Zeal or passion is not good without knowledge. And the one who acts hastily sins. In other words, a short-sighted man shortchanges his family. Always. A short-sighted man will always shortchange his family. You see, the world that we live in, ladies and gentlemen, is passionate about the immediate. YOLO, you only live once. It's a lie from hell, okay? It really is. But you want to live for now. You know, do what it is. Take, you know, live for what's right in front of you. God's people, however, we value the ultimate. We value the eternal. What you cannot yet see, what has yet to be, That is what we think about. When you read your Old Testament, the patriarchs, they were constantly thinking about the generations to come after them. Jesus obeyed God at great personal cost and sacrifice. Why? Because he had a vision beyond the immediate. His desire for the ultimate was stronger than his passion for the immediate, and it brought about a great reward, not just for him, but for you and for me all the generations to come after him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, Jesus saw the joy ahead of him. So he endured death on the cross and ignored the disgrace that it brought him. And now he holds the honored position next to God the Father. You see, Paul wants you and me to see this. What we lost in Adam, we regain in Jesus and so much more. And when you humbly submit yourself to the Lord Jesus, His life enters into your very soul. That one decision affects you and me, the generations to follow, the family of God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Our families can be changed for generations when we bring the life of Christ into them. I remember vividly standing in the driveway when somebody came by our house when I was 13 years old and said, hey, why don't you bring your family to our little church? And my dad said, yes. Freaked me out. Never been to church in my life. Only one time at Easter, something like that. I was panicking. I really was. But my dad made the decision because death had reigned over our family for 13 years. My dad made the decision. We're going to go to church because there's going to be some life there. He didn't know what was going on, but he just knew something had to change. And all you dads who are here today, I commend you because what you're, you're bringing life into your family. You're changing your family for generations to come. Secondly, we have to learn what it means to identify with Jesus. You know, I sometimes will tell my sons, I'll tell other people, when I see a great leader, like say Nick Saban or somebody like that, I would love to follow that guy around for a day. You know, how do they live their life different? What do they do differently? I just love to observe them. What if I could make you an incredible offer to spend a week with any man alive today? Who would you choose to spend that kind of time with? Maybe it might be Tom Brady, you know, preparing for a game. Like, man, how does he keep getting better as he gets older? Maybe it might be Tom Cruise on a movie set. You know, and you're like, how has he been at the top of his craft for so long? Maybe it might be Tiger Woods getting ready for Augusta. You know, like, man, what is the secret to his game? Or what about Jamie Dimon, you know, the, the, the CEO of JP Morgan? You know, he's meeting with investors. You know, how does he lead a room full of alphas? You know, how does he do that? Every man identifies himself with some other man, and you know who that is. Right now, if I were to ask you, who would you love to spend a week following around, observing, and listening to, you could think of who that man is right now. That's one thing to admire another man, to be inspired by another man. It's completely different altogether to be identified with another man. Look at verse 19. Paul says, For that's to the disobedience of the one man. Many were made sinners, Through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. All of humanity is represented by one of these two men or the other. And theologians say that we are identified with either Jesus or Adam, one or the other, and we have to choose. Some may object. You might say, well, I never chose to identify with Adam. Absolutely, you did. You identified with Adam the first time you ever followed him and that was when you sinned, when you sinned against God. You identified yourself with Adam. And so we made that choice. But here's life's biggest choice. You may choose to be born again into an identification with Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says, When you believed in Christ, He identified you as His own, giving you the Holy Spirit whom He promised. And so here's a great life question. You see, Jesus identifies himself with you. Do you identify yourself with him? Who is your identity as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a provider, as a protector? Who is your identity built around? If you identify with any other man other than Jesus Christ, by default you are identifying yourself with Adam. If I identify myself with Tom Brady, I identify with Adam. If I identify myself by some other leader, like a Jamie Dimon, I identify myself with Adam. Remember, I asked that question a moment ago. If you could spend a week just following around, listening to and talking to any man alive today, who would it be? Jesus is alive today today. In fact, he is more alive than anybody else on this planet. And we can sit at his feet, listen to him, talk to him, observe him in his word. We can do all that. And in doing so, we identify ourselves with Jesus. And life will reign over your existence as long as you identify with the Son of God. All right? The same way you identify with any other man is the way you identify with Jesus. You make it your goal to become like him in thought, attitude, and most importantly, action. Action. While you depend on him for the desire and the ability to do it. Colossians chapter three. You have finished with the old man and all that he did and have begun a new life as a new man who is out to learn what he ought to be according to the plan of God And in this new man of God's design, Christ is all that matters for Christ lives in them all. All right, Identify with the Lord Jesus. He's alive and well today. Spend time with Him, watching Him, learning from Him how to live your life. That's what it means to identify with Jesus. The F in life is we have to learn what it means to forget or just completely forsake our past failures. This is so, so important to the gospel. You know, one time uh, I was talking to a young woman. She was really upset and she wanted to talk about something. Her father had died. So we got to talking and come to find out she didn't really know her father. Um, Her father was gone before she was born. But still, when he died, it really upset her. And she found out later on that her dad had lived a really sad life and had in a way kind of Drank himself to death. And she couldn't understand why a man would do something like that. I mean, who can? But I talked to her about some of the men in my family and some of their struggles with relationships, and especially with alcohol. You know, when you shake my family tree, a bunch of a bunch of alcoholics fall out, right? And if we're being honest, you know, like other sharp men, when I say sharp, I mean, my last name, you know, not, not an adjective, right? I fight a terrible battle every day. It's self-condemnation. You know, when you're in a position of leadership, you have to learn how to handle the critics. And there are a lot of people in church who feel like their spiritual gift is criticism, you know? <laughs> not, not here. I gotta say I, on that note. I, uh, I talk to other guys. I've said this before. I talk to other guys, and they they have to deal with so much criticism from their church. I get almost none. So I just want to say thank you for that. It, it means so much. It really does. But the one critic that I cannot get to leave me alone, there's one. I can't stand him. It's me. It's me. I am far and away my worst critic. The biggest challenge that most men face in life is a threefold attack. I think it's really important for the ladies in our lives to understand this. And this threefold attack is shame, guilt, and regret. Shame, guilt, and regret. They attack every man's heart, and they try to take away his heart. And why do so many men lose the battle with guilt, shame, and regret? It's the accuser of the brethren. And also, they don't understand the enormity, the immensity of the grace of God. Look at verse twenty. The law was added, the ten commandments, and all of God's commandments, all the Old Testament commandments. Those things were added to our lives. You just know, think, why? Why would God lay that burden on men's backs? And Paul tells us so that the trespass might increase. So someone might ask a fair question: Why did God give us all these commands? If he knew we did not have the will or the strength to keep them, was God actually trying to make us fail? And I know it sounds crazy to think, but the answer is yes. Yes. The law of God draws clear lines between right and wrong. It shows us what the glory of God looks like. The law of God reveals the glory of God to us. And just like Adam, what is my first impulse my sinful heart wants to cross those lines. I was really tempted in preparing for this to put a sign on the door of theirs that said, wet paint, do not touch, and then count the number of people who would go up there and touch it to see. All right? I really was. Because, I mean, it's honest. let's be honest. That's, that is the way it works. It really is, especially when you're younger. Sin increases because there's something deeply wrong in the human condition. This is the legacy of Adam. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says the law never succeeded in producing righteousness the failure was always the weakness of human nature given God's law we willfully do what we know is wrong what is an assault on the character of God but then a strange thing happens to us the power of death overwhelms us because we're not designed to live that way We are designed to live in communion with God under the influence of the Holy Spirit, following the life of Jesus. But when we choose not to do that, our lives begin to crumble. We begin to experience pain and we begin to experience the heartache of guilt and shame and regret as we assault our very conscience by doing these things. And then it becomes evident to us that something is desperately wrong And we are dying because of it. Death reigns over our life. It reigns over our family. And then we all have a critical choice to make. This is what God, our Father, in His wisdom understands. Will you turn your back on God and be bitter and angry at God and try to forget that your life ever even happened through a bottle or a pill or some other thing? Or will you humble yourself before God Admit how wrong and how foolish you've been and say, God, forgive me. Live your life in me. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace just to make it. And we come to the end of ourselves. Then we're at the beginning of grace. Look where Paul says, then grace increased all the more. All right? That's a really, really great word in there. It only appears a couple of times in your Bible. It's coming up on the screen. I want you to see it. This word, you know, all the more, it means to exceed all boundaries, to superabound, to overflow. You might think about it as hypergrace, all right? And what he's trying to say here is a, uh, the hyper grace or the, the super grace of Jesus is so mighty, it's impossible to sin more than God would ever forgive. And Paul himself, who wrote this letter to the Romans, his very life is proof of that. You might remember, he murdered Christians. He threw Christians in jail, separating the parents from their children. Children died because or left destitute because of his actions. And look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, Though I formerly blasphemed and persecuted and was aggressively insulting to him, nevertheless, the grace of our Lord actually flowed out superabundantly For me. And I don't know where you might be today, uh, gentlemen or ladies, but there's no pit of failure you have dug that is so deep that the grace of God cannot increase, superabound, and overflow and lift you out of it. And so that brings us to our last point today to have life in our families. We have to really learn what it means to expand the reign of grace in your life. Expand the reign of grace in your life. I'm going to go off script for a minute, Owen, okay? <laughs> uh, I don't know if you guys have seen this Amazon special called Happy Shiny People, uh, but it's about, about the Duggars and about the ministry that kind of you know uh, created the Duggar family. And it's called the Institute of Basic Life Principles. A guy named Bill Gothard led it. And we were sitting around, we got together with the kids down in, uh, down in Central Texas a couple of weeks ago. And we we're sitting around talking and, and uh, I said something about, yeah, have you guys seen Happy Shiny People? And the girls were like, yeah, oh, it's incredible. I can't believe that. And I said, yeah, well, you know, we were involved in that. And you should have seen Hope's face, my youngest daughter, her jaw just dropped. I said, yeah, Hope, you were almost a dugger. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it could have happened, it really could have. And I just remember vividly, you know, uh, all these experiences. But here was the thing about the Institute and Basic Life Principles. There was like, there was a plan. There was a formula. And if you follow the formula to the letter, you're going to have these amazing children. And if you don't have amazing children, it's because you did not follow the formula to the letter. And I just remember, you know, even when I was younger, and Mel and I were kind of involved in this, and we were going to seminars and you know listening to some of this teaching and things like that. And I just remember you know, kind of getting disillusioned with a little bit. And there there was a point in my life, and I was trying to explain this to the girls, there was a point in my life where God just led me to try to understand His grace. And I read book after book after book on the grace of God. I think it was around 1999 or 2000 or something like that. I don't remember exactly when it was, but I just remember my eyes being opened to the grace of God at work in our lives. And it had such an impact on how I, how I, how I uh, behaved as a youth pastor. It changed my ministry, but it really changed my family when I understood the grace of God. So look at verse 21. So sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, many people have this idea that where grace reigns, there's going to be kind of a casual attitude towards sin. But we're going to see this in Romans chapter six and seven. The exact opposite is true. Grace and grace alone has the power to conquer sin in our hearts and our lives. I could get up here today and I could I could give you five rules for being a better father, and a bunch of dads would be like, "Yes, yeah, right. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it this time. This time's different. I'm going to do it." And you'd fail. We would all fail. Why? Because the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But look at Titus chapter 2. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What's the key to living soberly, righteously in the godlessness around us? It's grace, it's God's grace. I could, again, I could give you five rules for being a great dad. Guys love a plan. I could lay out a plan for you like the plan was laid out for me. But here's what always happens when you give somebody a plan. When life doesn't go the way it was planned, what happened? We didn't follow the plan to the letter. That's the way the law works in our lives. It brings condemnation. It brings death. It brings guilt and shame and regret. We need grace. The famous last words of every failed father. I got this. I got this. A life of grace. It's not about your best intentions, your strategies, your strength, your effort, your plans, your discipline, your commitment. None of that. The reign of grace is about waving the white flag. Jesus, I surrender. I cannot do it. I surrender all. I surrender all. Jeremiah chapter 17, the Lord says, I will put a curse on people who depend on mere flesh and blood for their strength. We should let that sink in for a moment. I will put a curse, death, on people who depend on mere flesh and blood for their strength. Most of us do that. I still do it so often, and I get so angry at myself every time I do. Whose hearts have turned away from the Lord, my blessing is on those people who trust in me, who put their confidence in me. You know, a friend of mine was in Dallas recently, and he saw a reenactment of the life of Christ. The last night of his life, he's facing crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying, and the drama begins to build, and Jesus prays, Father, give me the strength to be weak. Isn't that good? Father, give me the strength to be weak. I want to show you this real quick. I conclude with this picture of Peyton Hillis. Uh, Peyton Hillis was a wrecking ball disguised as an NFL running back back, you know, about 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, had a really good career, and now he's retired. He's about 37 years old, still in great shape, and uh, living in... Uh, he's on vacation in Florida, and he, he took his kids, his sister, and her kids down to the beach for a day of swimming. And his son and his niece, eight and nine years old, they got caught in a rip current. And they had storms the night before. They were being swept out to sea. And his mom began screaming. He was over there setting up a canopy or something. And she said, The kids are drowning. And she could see them waving their hands and screaming because they were swept out to water that was too deep for him. Hillis ran into the water. He began swimming furiously for his kids, fighting the rip current. And he decided to save his eight-year-old niece first. She was in crisis, leaving his nine-year-old son in the water, being swept out farther and farther. And he was able to swim far enough to stand up, and he met a man with a boogie board, and, he was, and she was safe. And he just dove right back in, and he started swimming out toward his son out in that deep water. And his son is going farther and farther away from the shore. And he reached his son, and he said when he got to his son, he was limp. He had no strength left. And as soon as his father grabbed him, his eyes rolled back in his head because he was just done. He had nothing left. His son, big kid for nine years old, weighs 130 pounds. He's like his dad. But Hillis was in the same condition as his son because he had already swum against that current, bringing his niece back to the beach. He was totally spent, weak as a kitten. And for someone as strong as he was, he said he never felt so weak before. And he began praying. He said, Lord, please. I don't care about my life. I don't. But if we could get him out of here, that's the only thing I care about. And so he just started swimming with everything he had left, and there was nothing left. But somehow, miraculously, they got close enough to the shore that he could walk. And they were about 20 yards from the beach. Peyton Hillis lost consciousness, collapsed in the water, totally spent. Some people grabbed him. They drug him to the beach. He was experiencing lung failure and kidney failure right there on the beach. And they began to intubate him. They were doing CPR on him, and they had to air flight him to Pensacola Baptist Hospital, and he was put on a ventilator. He was in a coma for 10 days. He finally woke up after 10 days and spent two more weeks in ICU. Six months later, he's on Good Morning America. You can see his interview on YouTube. It's amazing. But he's still recovering but when you're watching the interview, Michael Strahan says at the end of the interview, you're a hero. And he said, no, I'm not a hero. I just call myself a dad. I just call myself a dad. I just want us to leave with this today. Is there any greater cause, any greater adventure, any greater job to give yourself to fully, to spend yourself to the uttermost than to be a dad? To be a dad. At the end of your life, when all your strength is gone, everything is spent, is there anything better to have done with this time you have on earth than to have been a dad? If you want to be the kind of father, the kind of mother who leaves a legacy of life, grace must reign over your life. It's not about our strength, it's not about our plans, our commitment, our discipline, our strategies. Grace must reign. This is why Paul was told by the Lord in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he wrote about it. He said, The Lord said, My grace is all you need. And only when you are weak can everything be done completely by my power. Let's bow our heads together this morning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just want to speak to all the parents here today, but really everyone, Because this applies to all of us in every realm of life, not just our families, but to have the grace of God reigning in our lives. It always begins with having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, where you've asked him to forgive your sins, to give you his innocence. And you just say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you, I trust in you, and now I need you to live your life through me. That's where this all begins. And maybe you're here this morning, you've never done that. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, the words you speak aren't really that important. It's just a matter of the posture of your heart. But if you were to go before the Lord today and say, Lord, I just need you. I know death has been reigning in my life and my family for so long. Lord, I just need you. Jesus, I need you. But here today, I know most of us, we know the Lord, we walk with the Lord, but Maybe you need to come to a place in your life where you're kind of at the end of yourself and you just say, Lord, I've tried following a certain set of rules. I've tried plans. I've tried strategies. But Lord, I'm at at the end. I'm at the end of my strength. And so, Lord, I'm so weak. And just admit your weakness to the Lord and say, Lord, would you bring grace to reign in my life and grace to reign over my family. Lord Jesus, show me what that looks like. I want to walk in your grace. So let's be quiet for a moment. Take a couple of moments just to visit with the Lord this morning before we're dismissed. And Father, you know how inadequate I feel so many times to communicate these things. I just pray, Father, that your grace would reign here in this room today. Father, that maybe for the first time there might be someone here today who understands what it means to walk in your grace in a new and fresh way. So, Lord, we just love you so much. I just pray for the dads here in this room. Thank you so much for them, how much they mean to me, how much they mean to all of us. And I just pray, Father, that there would be a legacy of life that would begin here in this church. Father, that there would be generations, Father, who would be impacted because of your life in the life of these dads who are here, assembled here today. We just love you so much, Father. We pray these things for your glory today.